You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. Okay, everyone, very excited to bring to you live today, Rich Sheffrin, who's the CEO of Strategic Profits. And Rich is, he's done a lot. I think when you think about those of you that understand kind of the digital marketing, internet marketing world, he has kind of been the godfather, the mentor to, to all these kind of people like Ryan Dice, who we've had on the show in the, in the past, and just a lot of these different people, right? So I, I think he brings different perspectives. I think you've also helped Russell Brunson, which we, we interviewed recently as well. And, you know, beyond that, you're also the most ripped internet marketer that I know, because I remember <laughs> when we went to record in, 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 in Florida, you did a 24-hour stream. So you also do marathon streams, but for a period of time, you, you, you had to change your shirt. So then boom, it's like, the most ripped uh, marketer ever, right? But yeah, so quick background, and now I'll let you kind of dive in a little more on your background, but you've added over 15 million plus to all the businesses that you've worked at. Billion. How much? 15 billion. 15 billion. Yeah, I was like, that, that, that number is like a little low. But 15 yeah. billion, that feels right. And right now you're in the, the thick of it, or you were in the thick of it in, in New York because we're, we're recording on April 16th, 2020. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk about that a little bit, but Rich, first and foremost, welcome to the show. How's it going? It's going great. I'm excited to uh, be here. I, I always watch the stuff that you do and the stuff that you do with Neil. So I'm excited to be here and I'm excited to talk to people. I've never actually done, this is my first live Zoom. I've done a lot of Zooms, but not a live Zoom to an audience. So this is kind of cool. Oh, dude, it's great. I'll, I'll talk to you about it uh, later as well. Happy to have to share. But yeah, I mean, I gave a little background. I, I think, you know, the, the 15 billion that you've added, can you just shed a little more light as to kind of, you know, what your story is and kind of what you've done exactly? Yeah, I'll kind of give you the brief quick one. I, but like I was in the clothing and music business. I did pretty well in that. Kind of semi-retired after that, like in my late 20s. And by semi-retired, I mean, I knew I was going to have to work again, like financially. It wasn't like I had enough money now to live until 90, but I had enough to live for 10, 20 years and it'd be fine. And so I really just was figuring out what I wanted to do next. I understood entrepreneurship by that point. I thought I understood marketing because like the stores that I had in the city became like the hot store in Manhattan. The only equivalent that I could think of in LA, just to kind of give you context, would either be like Fred Siegel's or American Rag. Those were like the two stores we used to be compared with back in the 90s. And this is going back like quite a ways. Then I ended up, and it's not that long of a story, I guess. I got, I saw an article in Time Out magazine about a hypnotist. i never been hypnotized. I'm a curious person by nature. So I was like, I'd like to try that. So I booked an appointment, got hypnotized, fell in love with it because I'm highly hypnotizable. So I started studying that, then decided like, okay, that's going to be my next business. This is the next thing I want to do. And so that's what we did. And I came to realize very quickly that the marketing that I had done to make like the stores and the music label really popular was not the kind of marketing that was going to actually get the phone to ring. That was a painful experience that the more I liked an ad, the more I thought it was like perfect, the worse it did in actually getting the phone to ring for people to make appointments. And so that then put me on a journey, really, of learning direct response. We grew the hypnosis company, and it was at its height a $13.5 million company. And in 2001, we were based in Manhattan. We, you know, after 9-11, we lost our phone lines. We, you know, we hit a bunch of obstacles. At that point, everything I had done up until that point, I was successful. So it never occurred to me that I couldn't fix whatever problem was in my way. So I threw a lot of good money after bad money to try and like keep the hypnosis company alive and then was kind of forced into a decision 
of do I retreat all the way back to just one office because we had offices spread out throughout New York and rebuild, basically go through the same process I went through, have to say goodbye to all the good employees I had gathered, and then hope one day to find employees just as good, hope to find locations as good. And that as an entrepreneur, at least for me, was like the most unappealing thing to even consider, to like have to redo the same work. So I decided to sell off the assets and stuff and then kind of look for another thing to do. At this point, I had a lot less money, not like poor and destitute. It wasn't like rags to riches or anything, but I had about a quarter of a million dollars. That was what I was left with after everything. And I moved down to Florida and decided I was going to go online. And partly for really two reasons. One, because of direct response and me really learning how to get lots of phone calls. Like I felt pretty, pretty capable and that in that area and in that pursuit of advertising well then it had put me in touch with a lot of legends of direct response so like i had hired jay abraham i worked with like gary halpert john carlton dean kennedy right so uh, who, who are these people just for the audience to, to know. okay yeah so these are kind of like the legends of direct response in the entrepreneurial market yeah so jay abraham is still around today and actually i've done a lot of projects with him i helped bring him online a long time ago back in 2004 but yeah, these guys are the guys that demand huge fees at, to write a sales letter or to design a campaign, primarily because of their talent at writing something or creating something that gets a large group of people to raise their hand and want either to pay or more information or something. And, you know, it's from the days of direct mail and infomercials and stuff like that. And I think everyone who's probably watching, listening, whatever, can recognize that the internet is a direct response medium, but it wasn't the first. And so these legends who figured out everything, just to give like an idea, right? Like I can put up a landing page and run ads on Google ads, right? And, and AdWords, or I can do it on Facebook and I can have that all up half hour. Like in their days, they had to create a newspaper ad. That newspaper ad had to send them either to a phone room or like a coupon that they were going to mail in. So to create a mailing list was about a gazillion times harder than what it is for us, right? And then how do you make it profitable when you're not emailing them every day, where like every time you do a mailing, it's costing you a hundred grand. And so the first hundred thousand profit that you make is just getting you to break even. And that's if the, you know, if the mail is delivering everything that you're sending. And so just their experience and their knowledge of doing it for 30, 40 years in, in a realm that made it so much harder to be successful than what we have makes their knowledge very valuable. So that put me in touch with them. And so I had this illusion because it was primarily what was being advertised at the time, like about online marketing, because it was really at its infancy that I could see it was all direct response. And I had this belief that maybe I could run this entire business from my laptop. And that was insanely appealing to me because when the hypnosis company was dying its death, I had over 100 employees. I had 60 full-time hypnotists. I had like, so making payroll every two weeks was like crushing me, right? Like I had to build up my bank account so that I could get my, you know, I could get an extra 100,000 in the bank so that I could watch that 100,000 disappear. And then, you know, two weeks later. So the idea of not having employees and just like making money based on my own direct marketing skill was so appealing, like I was going to go online. Unfortunately, that's not really the way the world works. You know, an online business is just like an offline business. You need employees. Unfortunately, it took me about two years to figure that out. So I really struggled for two years. And thank God that $250,000 that I came down to Florida with, I had it. But I was, I had a lot of anxiety as I watched because we just had a baby. So new baby, 
a wife that doesn't work and I got to figure this out. And meanwhile, like I'm trying to do everything myself because like I had this stupid idea I did, but I struggled for about two years. And then when I realized that online business is like any other business and just like I didn't do everything in every other business, like I'm really being moronic trying to do everything in my business. Then I started running my business, my online business, like an offline business. At that time, I was creating about, I don't remember now how many, but it was either like one a week, at a minimum of one a week, one ebook a week in the parenting niche for quite a while. So teach your baby to walk, you know, teach your baby to sleep through the night and created like about 30 properties that where we tracked people's ages, the baby's ages. So we knew the right time to like, once someone bought one of those 30 products, we knew the calendar when they were going to get invited to see the next promotion, like because the, the age of their kid. And so that worked really well. And because I struggled, a lot of my friends who were going to internet marketing seminars at the same time saw the change. They asked me if I could help them. I could. The ones with business experience, it was really easy to help. The ones without business experience was very difficult. And so I spent more time with them and I really enjoyed that. So that just moved me more and more into the coaching space. And so the very first coaching thing I did was I did this campaign with Jay Abraham and another internet marketer who was actually one of my mentors on internet marketing, Stephen Pierce, which goes way back. And so the three of us did a three-part teleseminar series with Jay and then a coaching program behind that and then some events behind that. And then when that like run was done, I decided I wanted to start coaching. And that's when I coached, yeah, people like Ryan Dice, Walker. Yeah, I mean, you name it, Russell, all those guys. That's when I started working with them. And for about two years, I was kind of a big secret. You know, I was coaching a lot of people. A lot of people were having great success, but very few people were really talking about me in public. I would say that the only exception to that would be Mike Philsane. Mike, from day one, was would talk about me in public, which I always, to this day, really am very thankful. And by the way, Rich, I, I want to yeah. give people some context. Right? I think the people that are listening to this right now, they're like, okay, who are these people? So I, I think when I first started learning marketing or internet marketing back in the day, these names were kind of the titans, right? It's, right. you know, Mike Phil saying all these, I was watching all these videos and then these are the people that would teach people how to do it before it even became a thing. Now, especially in the tech world, everyone's like, oh, you're a good marketer if you know how to do demand gen. Demand gen is just, you're basically, a lot of people that are doing demand gen, you see, you see a lot of paid media, but the stuff that Rich is talking about right now, you talk about direct response, you talk about copyright, you can talk about hypnosis mindset and all that. Right. The best marketers understand all that stuff and Rich coach some of these best marketers into who they are today. So that literally is, is who he is. So I just want to give that context. Yeah. And then I would also say that we have an advantage because of that from a standpoint that one, coming online, knowing direct response already gives you a huge advantage just because you know lifetime value, you know that you can acquire a customer at a loss and still build a big business and things like that. But then also, we've been marketing online, right, since like about 2002. And so when we were started marketing, there was no social media, right? Google AdWords didn't exist. It was new when like Overture first even came on the scene. If you can find someone who's been around that long, one of the benefits is, is that we've learned everything as they came out, as opposed to coming online today and being like, holy crap, right? You know, it's been 20 years. So these things all didn't show up at one time. I mean, I remember telling my list to, and they'll remember, they'll know this name, right? I remember telling my list to download Twitter because Gary Vaynerchuk and I were going to the first South by Southwest together. And so we had to learn Twitter at that time when it first rolled out. So like now though, I can't even imagine what some people must go through if they're like coming online today 
And just to wrap up the story, I work with this company, Agora Publishing. And Agora is about a $1.5 billion company, our heyday, probably $1.8 billion. And all we sell is information. I've been working with them since they're about a $100 million company. And I was just finishing up a coaching program. And I had this three-month window before I had this big project with Agora. And I didn't have anything to do. So I decided that I would just do a short coaching program. And I wanted to get some clients for this short coaching program. And I was hoping to get like a dozen. And so I wrote a report to get those 12 clients and put it on my blog. The report was called the Internet Business Manifesto. To my surprise, it went viral. Those 31 pages that I wrote totally changed my life. It was downloaded over a million times, like within the first two or three years, I don't remember. Then it hit over 2 million downloads. And, but within a month, I had thousands of people that wanted to be my clients, had like three and a half million in my PayPal account from people sending in money so that I could coach them. And then just from there, I went on a, like on a tear, because if you write one report and your whole life changes, it's pretty clear what your next move should be. And that is write another one. And so for the next 18 months, I wrote six reports. And that built my company, basically, Strategic Profits. And I had that audience from the first report that then were like loyal readers of my reports as, they, as it also spread to others. And so those six reports really built my whole business, built my reputation, built everything. And that's kind of the gist. I mean, there's, there's more to that story. But I think that gives people a pretty good perspective. Yeah. I would say the only two other things that might be interesting to people is like, yeah, I have a billion-dollar testimonial from Agora. And the reason I have that is not, you know, I've helped them in a lot of areas, but that's one of the biggest impacts for that was that I brought Agora. What's a billion dollar testimonial? What does that mean? Basically, like I helped the company make an extra billion dollars. And I don't think very many people have that, even big corporations. But the way I was able to do that is really two things. One was bringing the VSL to Agora prior to the whole world knowing about it. And what's a VSL? A video sales letter. And that was basically taking a sales letter, which, you know, we used to use stuff like, I think it was called ClickView or whatever the video analytics were, the kind that you could actually watch people on your page. And you would see people like hit the page, scroll all the way down to see what the price was, scroll all the way up. And so as soon as I saw VSL and saw that we could take back control of the sales conversation, they wouldn't know price until the end. They wouldn't be able to like just you know, go at it the way they want to, as opposed to what we know would be the most persuasive. I knew it would work. It was invented by John Benson and he put it on a ClickBank product. And I'd say within days of him doing that, I saw it and I brought it to Agora. And in the early days, nowadays, it's about the same. There's no jump really difference between a long form sales letter and a VSL. But in those days, when no one had seen it before, it boosted response 300% to 400%. And so when you boost the response by 300 or 400% worldwide, you know, with a company that is worldwide, that is doing direct response as their only way of bringing in money, and they're a $250 million company, they can quickly grow to a billion and a half dollar company because you just boosted response, right? So that, and then we also invented the automated webinar. And so, you know, nowadays that's a pretty common thing, but in the old days, we were the only ones that had it. And so uh, that was also really nice because, you know, the show up rates were much higher. The engagement rates were much higher because people thought it was live. And so I'll stop there and Eric, you take control. Yeah. So thanks for the story. I I think there's a lot to to unpack. What I am really curious about, there's two things actually. 
I, I think because you've been through so much, I, I'm just wondering, you know, what are some of the evergreen lessons you learn, you've learned from adding the $15 billion for other people that still apply today? Yeah. I mean, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, it really comes down to a couple things. One is always recognizing that it's resourcefulness at the end of the day that makes the difference and resourcefulness in your ability to create value for others. So I was just reminiscing about a story that Dan Kennedy, who these people won't know, but Dan Kennedy was talking about when he was a kid, everyone went to the same restaurant for New Year's Eve and his friends were the valet parkers and that those valet parkers would pray or hope that that night of New Year's Eve, it would be raining, sleeting, whatever, they were in Ohio. And why would they do that? Because they would get four times the tips if it was a bad weather night, because the value in valet parking someone's car is different if it's a nice night, or it's a horrible night, right? So we're at a horrible time right now. And being resourceful to create value for others is the name of the game. And I've been, I guess I'm fortunate that most of my clients are online businesses. And I've seen across the board, I haven't seen one client yet that I've come across and I've talked to a lot doing Zoom meetings all day long, every day, whose business is down right now. They're all having their best weeks, their best months ever because advertising costs are down and, and conversions are up. So it's an insane time right now if you know how to create value for others. And I would say that like, in the internet marketing community, we went through a period like this back in 2008 and nine, because like at that time, you know, there was the financial crisis, but also at that time during the financial crisis, everyone's credit card limits got way reduced. Right. And, and so the size of the market, like just what was being spent, like shrunk an incredible amount. And the ones that survived were the ones that had created relationships with their customer base had a reputation for creating value and were able to sustain by knowing in which things to, to put more effort and energy in in that moment and which things to put on the back burner. And, and I think that if, if anyone watching this right now hasn't done that, like hasn't thought like, okay, if this is the new reality, this is the new norm, right? What is going to change? What's going to be more valuable? What's going to be less valuable? What projects I need to speed up? Which ones do I need to put on ice? you know, really a reevaluation of every element of the business. In addition to that, and this is just a general business strategy, but it's a very necessary one, and especially now, is that most businesses and entrepreneurial, at least led businesses I know, they don't do enough pruning. You know, if you are going to grow something big, you have to prune it. And, and so, you know, it's not blanket layoffs. It's about figuring out which elements of the business entirely probably don't make sense right now and which ones make a lot more sense right now and starting to prune away the parts that are probably going to die or wither and therefore take the resources from that to move them over. And, you know, there's one point that I try to make on every interview I do, and this is primarily to entrepreneurs, but it could be also for really any IT person or anyone doing anything, because I think especially as you work from home, you get a lot more liberty in how you do your work, right? With entrepreneurs, they get liberty to define their work, but even in any other job, you, especially when you're virtual, you have more freedom. And one of the biggest mistakes I see entrepreneurs make is they don't design the business around who they really are. They design their business on who they believe they should be. And so, you know, I'm a procrastinator, I'm a perfectionist, I'm also not money motivated. A business can't procrastinate, a business can't be a perfectionist, and a business needs to be money motivated. 
instead of me trying to be those things and therefore make the likelihood of my business that uh, successful that much less, instead, it's about figuring out a way that the business can be successful being led by someone like me. And so like all the products I ever created, I created as live coaching programs first. And the primary reason for that was one, I could sell it before I delivered it so I can get the money now. But then the other part was that perfectionism and procrastination doesn't matter if on Wednesday at 3 p.m. I have to deliver the first module. And so I put myself in difficult positions because I knew that if I didn't and I just went someplace to create, I would never be done. And then on the financial side, like I just created like profit sharing with high incentives for my team that was paid monthly and they got the financials every week. So by like week two or week three, if we had already been in the green zone, you know, past the numbers that we had to hit for profit sharing to happen, now they realize that of every dollar, 20 cents is getting spread amongst them. Now they're scheming and they're thinking about how do we make the business as profitable this month as possible. And so my point being is that whether you're working from home and you're not, you don't have your own business or you have your own business, you need to think about what environment do you need to create to get the best out of you based on who you are today. Not who you'd like to be. I mean, I'd love to not procrastinate. I'd love not to be a perfectionist. I'd love to, at certain times, be very money motivated, but I'm not. And I guess maybe that's also just with maturity, you recognize that there's just going to be certain things you don't change about yourself. But I think that that's one of the biggest mistakes I see people make. And I've embraced who I was very early. And I think that's a big cause of my success. Well, I, I think you're touching on something really important. You know, you talk about incentives and Charlie Munger always talks about, you show me the incentives and I'll show you what happens, right? Right. Um, so how did you structure your profit sharing arrangements just so people have some type of template to work off of? Yeah, sure. And I'll even tell you just a little bit background. It won't be very long about why I did it. Like, so in the hypnosis business, right? I also left most of the profits in the business. And that was a mistake because like as the bank accounts grew a million, two million, right? I felt really powerful and strong and happy, but I left the money in the business. And when we hit bad times, it was very easy to spend that money because the the money was already in the business. When I had to write a check to the business, those were much more difficult to write because now I'm like, wow, the money's going in the wrong direction. And so I realized from that experience that I want all the money that I give the business to go in that direction if possible because it makes you think a lot more about whether or not you want to do that. So I made a promise to myself after the hypnosis business that I would never leave all the profits in a business, no matter how much we're growing, no matter how much I think that like, you know, we're going to hit the stars. That just isn't the wisest move because you can always put the money back in, but at least you're putting in like a choke valve to make sure that that's really what you want to do. So in my business and my business, the strategic profits, like we've never been like a huge company. We're an eight figure company, but we were a low eight figure company. Now we're co-owned with Agora Publishing. So now we're, you know, I guess we're much bigger, but so I had, let's say a team of 10. It wasn't that big, right? So what I did was I would take 20% of the profits and that would go to me personally, right? 10% of the profits went to the person who was actually running my business, like the president, you could say, because, you know, I'm a creator and more flaky and not what, like, I I can't run the day-to-day. I can't be that detail-oriented and I avoid confrontation. There's a whole reason why I I couldn't do it. But he or she got 10%. Then the rest of the team got 20%. So if you do the math, I was taking 50% of the profits out. 
right? But what I did was like, even I think when we started, let's say it was like a $3 million business or a $2 million business. I don't remember when I put the profit sharing in. And this, I figured that like, okay, the business needs money for growth. So let's pick a number, $50,000, okay? So let's say it was a $3 million business. So that would be a quarter of a million a month is what we're bringing in, right? So I would say that like, let's say that our, our expenses, I'm just gonna make up a number because I don't really remember. Let's say that our expenses were 100,000 a month and I don't think they were anywhere near that, but let's just say, I mean, I was taking a salary as well, so it could have been maybe. So let's say our expenses were 100,000. I would add another 50,000 to it. I mean, the team knew that because we need 50,000 extra a month to spend money on new things, like to test different things, to, you know, to just a business needs extra money. So at the $150,000 mark, right, once we pass that, everyone's getting paid right? And so the team is getting their 20%. There was only eight other people on the team, right? That's it. So they're each getting a percentage of that 20%. So much so it worked so well that like I would even get pressure from employees if one employee wasn't carrying their weight, because if that person got replaced, they'd make more profit and that would be better, right? So it helped me get past confrontation. It helped me get past like, you know, not being money motivated because I'd have to go back to my team. You know, even at times when I wanted to take time off and I didn't want to work anymore, the team was then would work with me to figure out, well, how can we make money off you when you're not working, right? So I'm like, look, I really don't want to work, but if you want to sell people on coming with me for the weekend and we'll take, I'll take five people just to the cigar bars I go to, to the, the, my beach club that I'm a member at and stuff like that. I'll do that. And as long as you like figure out how to shuttle everyone around and make the experience great for everyone. So that's what they did. And then they would sell that like 15 grand for the weekend. And I think they, they 10,000 was like profit and 5,000 or 3,000 was spent on like you know, everyone staying in nice suites and being around, carted around in limousines and stuff like that. Whereas like, had I not had that profit sharing, the rest of the team would have been like, great, Rich is going to take a bunch of time off and we won't work that much and it'll all be great for all of us. But instead it's the exact opposite. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You want to take time off? We have to figure out a way to make money off you even when you're not, you know, it's like the, the ideal. So it was like, whatever the expenses were, add 50,000. Right. And that's like, and if we don't, if we had a losing month, that 50,000 has to be paid back. Right. Like we need that 600,000 over the, the course of the year. So, so, you know, fortunately the only way this could become like a real cluster is if you had many, many, many losing months. And now the team is like disincentivized because they don't even feel like they could hit it. And I might've had to have made an adjustment, but I never, I never had to, but yeah. So it was really pretty simple and straightforward. I like everyone got the same amount you know, because it was large and, you know, some months like, you know, when we do a launch or something like that and crazy money comes in, everyone made a lot of money. You know, they could make in one month, maybe what they were getting paid per year. And I wanted everyone to win. I'm not comfortable going into my office, celebrating how successful I am, especially since I'm a front man too. Like, so everyone's going to hear about the success and then have my team just having worked a lot harder and have nothing for it. I wanted them to be rooting for me every step of the way. And maybe I made a little less money from it, or maybe I made more, I'm not really sure. But I know that the environment I had was the environment that I wanted to work at, and it was run the way I wanted it to run without me having to do those things, which was much more important to me based on what I was saying earlier.
Got it. That's helpful. So a couple more questions we're working towards sure. wrapping up. I think there might be some lessons from, you know, the $13 million hypnosis company and you had to lay people off, kind of shut things down. I think a lot of it applies to kind of where we are right now with, you know, things kind of going belly up for a lot of different companies. So what do you think are some lessons from that that you think would carry over into our, our current time period? Well, okay. So when you're saying goodbye to people, generally there's the, like, I fi- I've fired a lot of people in my life. It's not necessarily that enjoyable, but Sometimes it has to be done. The people that deserve to be fired, those conversations are relatively easy. I always started out those conversations by being like, look, you know, Eric, we, I met with you about this, you know, two months ago, and I told you it was a problem. I met with you a month ago telling you that it hasn't changed. And if it doesn't change, I'm going to have to let you go. It's now a month later. And here we are again. So let me ask you a question. Like if you were me and I'm you, what are you going to do right now? And they'd be like, I'd probably let you go. And if they said that, I'm like, unfortunately, that's the conversation we're having right now. And if they said I would give me one more chance, I'd be like, yeah, that's probably why you're where you are and I am where I am. I've already given you two chances. And so like we have to part ways. And that was just an easier way for me to have that conversation, right? But if it's people that don't deserve it, you know, I've had to fire people and I've given them severance. And then I've had times where I didn't have the money to give severance. So what I tried to do was always give people a warning ahead of time that it was coming right? That they should start looking for another job, that I wasn't going to stop paying them yet, but there's going to be a moment and it's probably going to come pretty soon that, that they are going to lose their job. Right. And I did that because like, I really, like you said, and like I've confirmed, I've been in this game for 20 years and I have a pretty good reputation. I'm pretty proud of it. And one of the reasons I have a pretty good reputation is I really do my best to keep my side of the street clean, to burn no bridge. If I can in any way avoid it, because you never know how like life comes back around. There are many people who worked for me that now have much bigger companies than me, right? Many people I've coached who have much bigger companies than me, but also it's just good karma, right? So I try to be as forthright as possible. As soon as I know that something's coming, share that. You know, I used to have a, a rule with my assistants because they worked with me like extremely closely. I will never fire you surprisingly, right? So you will never be surprised by being fired. I will give you plenty of time to get another job, okay? I will let you know and I will carry you until we get you that other job and I'll give you a great recommendation. I mean, I didn't say this on day one. This is after someone worked out. In return, you can't leave me. You have to give me heads up. You have to find your replacement. And as long as you're willing to find me your replacement and you know like that that's on you and I know that I'm not gonna ever throw you on the street and that's what like the deal we have together, then like this is going to work. Right. And so, you know, that's an extreme case because like my assistant is someone who I'm probably interacting with more than any other human being on the planet, eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, knows my schedule, like to every precise moment, but just trying to do the right thing. And when you have to do the wrong thing, be very clear about that. You wish it was some other way. Be forthright. Tell them all the reasons why it can't be any other way. And also be willing to do whatever you can for that person. So, you know, anyone that was decent and better, I would be willing to give a recommendation to. And if I had to carry them for an extra week or two weeks, or if they wanted to use the office space, maybe not right now, because, you know, but, but like whatever assets that I had that they were using in their job, if they could still use them for some period of time, or like if they had a laptop from the company and I had no home for that laptop, maybe it's worth $400 if I go sell it on eBay, but knowing that them having that laptop is going to give them the ability to get the next job, I give them the laptop. 
I mean, if I'm replacing them and the next person needs a laptop, maybe not. But like if I'm just getting rid of the position or because we're laying off, take it. I want to try and be as generous as I can in the areas where I can be generous and it doesn't really cost me much and be very careful about the few things that maybe do matter. I think a lot of times people just kind of like follow a checklist. I'm a fan of checklists, but the nuances of life are not captured in a checklist. And there's a lot of people who on their exit, I was nice to, and that has paid me back in spades. And some will never pay me back in spades, but you know, I felt better after the conversation. It made having the conversation a lot easier, right? Like I didn't delay and delay and delay because it wasn't going to be that bad of a conversation. So I'd say that that would be my advice. Got it. That's super helpful. Thank you for that. And so two final questions. They're pretty rapid fire. Um, so okay. best direct response book ever. I'll give you just a couple, but real quick, if you are already knowledgeable about direct response, then I would say breakthrough advertising for sure. If you know nothing about direct response and you want to get started, the one that really like John Carlton had a course that you could probably find on eBay, maybe John still even sells it, but it was like a three hour read and it was just about like, how do you sell stuff, right? And that was probably the first thing that I ever read that really impacted me. And if you're somewhere in between, you know it already, but you don't maybe know the most nuanced things and that's where breakthrough would come in, then I would say that your best knowledge is probably gonna come from studying things that you know are working and try and figure out why they're working. Got it. That's helpful. So like a swipe copy, swipe library. Swipe library, but understanding that not every sales letter is a winner or not every funnel is a winner. But if you come across a funnel that is a winner or it's a funnel that is getting you to buy to then break it down. Like, and when I say break it down, it's like when you read the sales copy, figure out like one thing that that paragraph is doing, because in, in direct response, you're not putting anything in for no reason. So every paragraph has a purpose. Is that purpose to add proof and credibility? Is that to dimensionalize a benefit? Is it to talk about a feature? Is it to eliminate an objection? Is it to precede the price and therefore set up a price drop down? Like what is that purpose? I think if you do that, you get very good very quickly at being able to understand what a good funnel needs to be or a good sales letter needs to be. And therefore, it becomes more intuitive to be able to do it as opposed to having to think about it so much. So the evolution is start with basic stuff. In the middle, start learning from what you're seeing and what you're experiencing. And then when you have enough knowledge, then go and read like an advanced book like Breakthrough Advertising, which will give you more dimension to what you've already discovered on your own about like, how do you create demand when they know about the problem? How do you create demand when they have no concept they even have a problem? Things like that. Got it. All right. Final question. What is one favorite tool that you love that's not yours? So it could be like a, yeah. something physical or an app. Sure. So I tried to learn speed reading a gazillion times when I was a kid, but I didn't have the discipline to pace, you know, move my finger every day. And it's a skill. So if you don't practice it, you don't get it and you don't get better. So I never really learned how to speed read until the iPad came out. And then I got this app called Quick Reader. And Quick Reader would take any PDF or EPUB. Oh, no, it took EPUBs. So I would use Calibre, which is a free app that turns PDFs into eBooks. And I would put them on high speed and then throttle it down. So I would be at 3,000 words a minute, 2,000 words a minute, 1,000 words a minute, and then 500 words a minute. And that was when I was starting 
because I only read like 300 words a minute. But over time, like just like when you're driving at 80 miles an hour and you go down to 50 and it feels slow, as you practice that, as I practiced at the higher speeds, my, my reading speed got higher and higher. So my process for learning, which I think is probably one of the things that like probably is one of the most useful things I can share is I will use an app, a different app called Voice Dream, like you're sleeping at night, D-R-E-A-M. That will read any PDF or EPUB to you up to 700 words a minute. I listen to a book while it's pacing on voice dream and I can go through like a best-selling like hardcover 250 page like business book in about 80 to 90 minutes while I'm working out on the elliptical because it's reading it to me voice and I'm seeing it on the page. I'll know by the time the end of the book whether that's a book worth reading like again and highlighting. If it is, I put it into Goodreader, another app on my iPad. And I will then read it, but I've already read it. So I've, like, I'm familiar with it. Now I'm just remembering the good parts and I highlight. From there, I just send the, all the highlights at a good reader at, to my email. I open the email. It has all the highlights. I take those highlights. I put it into Evernote. And in Evernote, then I will go through what I highlighted. And I highlight a lot because I'm, I assume I'm never looking at that book again. And I will go through those highlights and then I will bold anything that I feel is important. And then the next time I look at that note, I will then highlight anything in bold that I think is important. So by the third time I see that note, I know the few things that matter the most. I also then take those notes and I put them back into quick reader. And now I am speed reading something that I've already studied that I already know the notes. And it's not that important that I get it. And so there's like, three or four things that are really important about speed reading. One, you can't sub-vocalize, right? So the way you get around that is you can't move your tongue while you're speed reading. So gum, like I chew gum, and you can't, you can't move your tongue to the words if you're chewing gum. You could put a pencil in your mouth, you, but you got to get past that. The other thing is worrying about retention. So one of the benefits of speed reading my notes was that I already covered it. I don't really care. I'm going to look at it again and again in the future. So I'm not that concerned, like if I'm getting every word, because I got to go faster than I can comprehend to then get my ability to be able to comprehend at that rate. And so that's generally my process. And you know, if you read on Kindle, you can do the same thing. You know, there are things that will extract the notes from Kindle. And then you would do the same, like, you know, put it to Evernote, go through it, then export it into like a quick reader, and you're good to go. And so that's kind of the process. Those, so quick reader, voice dream and good reader or some other app that you can highlight on that you enjoy reading on. But to me, those three are, and it's all on my iPad. So I have my whole library of all the books I've ever read on my iPad, all the notes I've ever taken on my iPad and anything that I'm ever going to want to read on my iPad. So I'd never want to lose my iPad. That's awesome. So Rich, this has been great. What's the best way for people to find you online? Just go to strategicprofits.com. We've got some great products, but I'll let you discover them on your own. All right, everyone. That's it. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.